I'm going to say it's not about the preparation of the ass that's important, but it's more about your state of mind. So you're doing like the Jesus thing in the New Testament. What God has made clean, don't you deem unclean. Yo, what is going down? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden Smith. And I'm Troy Polidori. And we made it, brother. A hundred episodes. I thought we'd be dead by now, for sure. Or that someone would cancel us. And that someone being ourselves, probably. (laughs) Probably. I'm still hoping somebody else cancels us. I want to have that, like... On my on my wall, I was canceled on the internet. We need to get picked up first by one of those big podcast production like companies that has various spokes of different programs that they promote. You know, someone that can take us on and then get us from our tens of thousands of listeners to hundreds of thousands, and then then we'll get in trouble. Then we can realize the dream of being canceled. Yes, exactly. But first, got to make at least a year or two of Fuck You podcast money, and then we can go out in a blaze of glory, right? Yeah, but we got to, especially on this 100th episode, just fill it with the most, like the hottest possible takes so that we have a backlog of stuff to get canceled about. We can't just be like people who got famous and then clearly wanted to get canceled. Like We have to have a long history here. You know? mm. Well, we are going to talk about I mean, topics as diverse uh, as the protests in Hong Kong to ass-eating. So there's a potential that the confluence of topics will be viewed as problematic. That's that's our brand, yo. (laughs) That is our brand. So, uh, yeah, we are – this is our 100th episode. So we've been doing this, I mean, for about three years now, something along those lines. And uh, this is our 100th episode. So this – week we're just going to be addressing some questions we asked people to email us or to insta or tweet us or whatever with questions and so we've compiled a list of them and hopefully we'll be able to get through all of them we got a pretty decent amount so we're just going to talk about them and then at the very end i have a question for troy and troy has a question for me and so we're gonna uh, tackle those as well so yeah that's what we got planned for you this week yeah, yeah. But first, got to talk about our sponsor, Mubi. Yeah, exactly. So Mubi is an online streaming service for some of the best film content that you're going to be able to find on the internet. They always have a perfectly curated set of 30 films in a slaughterhouse rotation where a film gets 30 days of playing time and then it gets chopped off at the end, no longer to be seen. It goes off into the archive of the Mubi library. Maybe it'll resurface again, but you can't count on it. So uh, then, of course, at the same time, a new film comes into the rotation to have its 30-day time period. Um, But they are sponsoring us by giving our listeners a 30-day free extended trial. If you go to Mubi.com slash Owls at Dawn, that's M-U-B-I.com slash Owls at Dawn, M-U-B-I.com slash Owls at Dawn and go check them out. They do, uh, they specialize in indie darlings, um, amazing regional cinematic films from all over the world. 
some of the best directors, best actors, etc., etc. And um, I always find stuff in my library that is amazing to watch. And actually, Troy is going to tell you about something interesting in his library now. So what's interesting that you've got staring you in the face in the slaughterhouse rotation? Yeah, so this week um, they brought up Steven Soderbergh's The Limey. And mm. uh, yeah, I really love this film. I remember seeing it, I think, in a little after college, maybe. And I hadn't been aware of it beforehand, even though I, you know, Steven Soderbergh obviously kind of came to fame during that time and became a big time director. Um, this is one of his uh, 90s films. And it's kind of like a, um, a, like a 60s revenge flick, but reimagined. And mm. those were often some of my favorite films when a like modern director decides to reimagine some old genre. We're talking about Tarantino in our last bonus app. And obviously there's a lot of that going on for him. And some of Christopher Nolan's early films are kind of doing that with like some noir uh, tendencies. Mm. And so sort of we're kind of doing it here, but with his own, you know, crazy editing and inventive direction. Oh, cool. um, and then just the cast of this movie is super fun. Uh, Terrence Stamp and Peter Fonda. Hmm. Um, you know, famous, famous 60s actors as well. As Peter like Fonda just passed. Now. I wonder if that's why this film is in the rotation. Yeah, good point. I hadn't thought of that, but that's probably why. Oh. Yeah, super fun film. Uh, it's a thriller. It's super short. I think it's just an hour and a half. Um, absolutely the kind of thing you can just throw on and just lose time for an hour and a half all the hmm. while actually engaging with something that's also, you know, has artistic merit as well. So, yeah, check out The Lammy on movie. Cool. Sounds good. I am not familiar with it. So, yeah. Um, in my library, I've got a kind of fun, cheesy film that I haven't watched since I was a kid. But growing up in a household that were huge Beatles fans, this film uh, I did get to see a few times. And it just makes me smile. But it's A Hard Day's Night. I love that movie, dude. <laughs> it's so good. John Lennon's like, sarcastic wit is so great in that movie. Uh, there's a wonderful line. Ringo Starr brilliantly sums up the spirit of this film is what they say when he's asked if he's a mod or a rocker. And he says, I'm a mocker. <laughs> 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 so, yeah, I mean, those are the, the, the level of quality of films that you're going to get that and plenty, plenty more. So go check out Mubi. Go to Mubi.com slash Owls at Dawn and you get a 30 day free extended trial. So check that shit out. Dude, have you ever seen the movie The Ruddles? The Ruddles? Yeah. No. Okay, so you're talking about Hard Day's Night here. I got to just plug this. There's a film that was made, I think, in the 80s called The Ruddles. It's by some of the guys from Monty Python. Eric okay. Idle is in it. And um, forget who else from Monty Python is in it. Just a couple of guys. And uh, they basically do a takeoff on like the Beatles, a Monty Python style takeoff on a Beatles mm. movie. Oh, it's that sounds wonderful. amazing. It's so funny. Yeah, and almost nobody knows about it because it hasn't gotten any like big release or pub, but it's super funny. So check out the ruddles as well. That sounds amazing. OK, yeah, I'm going to have to rent that on Amazon or something like that. Oh, yeah, it's one of my favorite comedies. Sweet, sweet, sweet. Well, we also want to say if you want to support us in other tangible ways, you can go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. We have several tiers of support you can contribute towards there and get a bunch of goodies such as the bonus episodes of which we just mentioned, we have a new one on Tarantino's once upon a time in Hollywood. Um, that's out uh, as well as the monthly newsletter where we have extra sticky leaves, extra shitty minutes, articles we're reading, some books we're reading stuff like that. Um, and also the ability to contribute towards the democracy motherfuckers, which is where you get to 
as a group, the patrons as a group, get to choose an episode topic for us. We have a poll going right now about that. So if you mm-hmm. want to contribute towards that, jump on to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. Yeah, let's get the show started, brother. So how are we going to do this? Uh, you want to just go back and forth? Yeah, that sounds good. You start. All right. So the first question we have um, is from you know, some of these names from people on Twitter and Insta and stuff are going to be very difficult. So we'll just I say we like... just stick with just stick with first names or if it's a if it's Twitter or Insta, then it's a handle and that's a public profile name. So that's fine. Right. I guess. Yeah. So we have okay. one from Apple Podcasts from Chapa Noise or Chapa Noir. Uh, and they're asking. Have you ever done any work on the ideas or philosophies found in Wagner's operas, especially oh, yeah. the ring cycle? Mm. And they talk a little bit about their own um, experience with music um, and then how that can tie into some philosophical ideas. And uh, they also mentioned that they listened to Show Me the Meaning podcast. And so they thought that would mm. be an interesting thing to talk about. So do you, have, do you have any experience with the ring cycle or Wagner at all? I mean... I have read Wikipedia pages and I know a little bit uh, about Wagner's relationship with Nietzsche, or maybe I should say Nietzsche's relationship with Wagner, but not, not in depth enough where I would feel really like I'd have much to say that would be adequate to the question. You know what I mean? Yeah, I feel the same way um, in terms of like art criticism. Definitely not. Yeah, um, I mean, I've heard, is, I've heard the ring some, cycle like 16 hours. So yeah, it's like 15 hours <laughs> and it's in four parts. And the first part is actually kind of a prelude. And then it's got the second and third part. And the fourth part, I believe is the longest. It's like five hours long. And it's meant to be, it's meant to be um, performed over a few nights. And it's supposed to be Wagner kind of rejecting opera and doing just drama, like music drama in, I, I don't know how you would say it with a German accent, but it's literally spelled music drama, um, but music with a K, music drama, I don't know. But um, but like I know George Bernard Shaw has an interesting take where he thinks that that the cycle of, you know, it's kind of telling the story of gods and myths. And I think it's a Wotan, the god Wot, Wot, Wotan would probably be what it is in, in German. Um uh, that it's kind of uh, that that Shaw interprets it as being sort of like a Marxist or a socialist uh, criticism of the development of uh, technology under capitalism and things like that. And then I know that there are psychoanalytic readings, um, kind of more Jungian readings about the um, the the journey of the archetype or something along those like the archetypal figures. So I know that there are different interpretations. I just personally don't have a stake or any investment in any of those interpretations to be able to speak confidently or with any authority. I do know though that an interesting, one interesting maybe take of uh, one of the cycles is um, in Django Unchained, actually speaking of Tarantino where Django basically is a, a Siegfried character who's going after his own Brunhilde. And that's one of the reasons that um, Christoph Waltz's character, I forgot his name at the moment, but that's one of the reasons that he is so inclined to assist Django in um, getting Brunhilde released from Candyland or Candy Ranch or whatever the fuck the name of, uh, of DiCaprio's uh, slave farm or plantation is called. So, but that was an interesting interpretation of just that one little tiny element of the ring cycle, which is, I think, the third, because I think it's, 
the prelude and then i think it's valkyrie and then it's siegfried and then it's the last one um but so i think it's the third cycle but but that i know that's kind of cool but oh, I, I don't really man. i had never even i'd never heard that at all yeah there's this really cool moment in in django where where django and christoph waltz character are they're around like a little campfire that they've made and waltz tells django the story of siegfried and it it is it's literally a kind of um analogous tale and arc to the very journey that django is on and and christoph waltz's character even says he says well i've got my very own siegfried right in front of me so how can i how can i resist helping you when you're gonna go rescue your own brunhilde right um, and her, and her, and her name in Django is Broomhilda, but in Wagner's opera, it's Brunhilde. So, um, so there's an interesting crossover there. So that's like an interesting interpretation of it. But, um, but so I don't really know much about the theory behind it. I know there are different music movements. Like I guess Bernard Shaw also says that in the fourth act, uh, Wagner switches back to opera and it just goes to straight opera rather than music drama but i guess that wagner himself had claimed that like the audiences don't kind of get what he's doing so he's no longer going to do this one other style of opera like the classical italian style of opera and he's going to do his own thing which is influenced by various other figures in like a non-standard musical opera form which he calls music drama which is just drama and it's like emulated after greek tragedy and or uh yeah it's following after greek tragedy and stuff but that's all i know and that's like that's like 101 basic. I, I just know little things about it. And then, of course, I guess Wagner's a he's a problematic figure because of his anti-Semitism and things like that later in his life. So, yeah, but that's really what I know. Yeah, I'm in the same place. Uh, I also know that there's a book by a British philosopher. Uh, I think his name is Brian Maggi um, or Maggie and mm-hmm. uh, called Aspects of Wagner. I was reading about that the other day, and he kind of goes in much more of an apologetic stance um, towards Wagner, uh, especially with the ring cycle and stuff like that, and detailing kind of the philosophical background to do having to do with like um, uh, anarchism in like the 19th century, um, which I guess Wagner had a uh, in his early life was was very much drawn towards, and then his kind of conversion towards Schopenhauer, um, which comes before the ring cycle. So there's a whole like world out there of literature about the philosophical background. Uh, Wagner and the ring cycle and everything else. So um, definitely not something we're going to be able to talk with any authority about, but there's all sorts of resources out there. Yeah, 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 yeah. And check out Django for at least a, a, a type of interpretation of one of the cycles. So, yeah. And, and Apocalypse Now. <laughs> and Apocalypse Now, yes. All right, I'm up with the next question, yes? Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. So this is from Dobramir, uh, who sent us an email. Says, do you guys think it's possible to be a good socialist? For example, fighting for fair treatment of the workers at the workplace, having dialogue with employers to resolve pressing matters, wanting to live in a more fair and just society, etc. And a misanthrope. And in parentheses, to hate and be distrustful towards other people due to their tendency to be selfish, deceitful, etc., etc., etc. At the same time, are these two positions too contradictory to coexist? Can there be a middle ground between the two? So basically, can you be a good socialist and a misanthrope? What do you think, T-Roy? Yeah, so I think the short answer is yes, you can, but it depends on how you interpret the question a little bit. Um, so it seems That's to such me a that, philosophical move. Yeah, of course it is. <laughs> what did you expect here? Questioning the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
denying the premise. So um, I'm imagining here that the term socialist is being described as or is referring to an ideological stance. Like this is a value or a set of values that I uphold, right? Um, Whereas misanthrope is more about, seems to refer uh, refer to like your demeanor or like Mm. your character or maybe just your or dispositions towards certain yeah like a habitual disposition yeah yeah and so those two things certainly can go hand in hand in fact i think they almost usually go hand in hand um in that you can you know act a certain way or behave a certain way um you know unreflectively and then upon reflection have totally different sets of values and beliefs so in that sense yeah you can absolutely um be a misanthrope and be kind of have a tendency or disposition towards not liking other people, not liking to be around other people or distrusting or being skeptical of other people's motives. And then also want or desire or value a world where um in some sense, just generally speaking, you work together for some common good. Those two things certainly can go together. Now I think the real question would be if if misanthrope is more like a principled skepticism towards other people like people should not ever be trusted as a matter of principle right Mm. can you have that sort of a belief which i guess like um what's like the the kind of new um like woke version of like anarchism where like people are uh distrustful of everything and think the world's gonna end um like true detective was kind of getting down that road what's the name for it do you remember the philosophical school Mm -hmm. it's like a principled skepticism um, about everything good okay uh but it's, it's like a new kind of nihilism sort of mm. um i wonder if you can be that and be a socialist and i'm a little bit more skeptical that that's possible i think there's some kind of barrier to being like a full-blown nihilist and like co- cosmic nihilism is that yeah i mean it could be something like that that's not the term i'm looking for but yeah okay it kind of calls it out mm. what do you think about that <sighs> to play devil's advocate i'm gonna at least see how far i can go with this but i'm gonna say no it's not possible because i'm gonna say that the question is placing a lot of emphasis on or at least that the word good is doing a lot of work right so can you be a good socialist so then i would i would want to say well what is a good socialist and i think that maybe it necessitates a type of love for, at the very least, let's say humanity. I think that you could be an eco-socialist, which broadens out your sphere of love relationships and your piety connections. But let's just say, and, and for simplicity's sake, let's just say it's because it's related to misanthropy, so let's say human uh, humanism. So at the very least, you have to have a, a sort of love and a desire for the betterment of humanity but let's not presume that humanity exists let's say that humanity is also an ideal that we're constantly striving towards that we are in the process of becoming human i don't know that we could necessarily say that the kind of biological or species designation of homo sapien equates with this ideal that we have uh, that's attached to the signifier of the human so let's also say that the human is something that we're striving towards so in order to be a good socialist i think it requires a type of pietistic commitment to striving towards the realization of the human, which is this grand idea um, that I think necessitates uh, precisely a non-misanthropic attitude. So I think if you accidentally do happen to be mistrustful because you've been spurned or something along those lines, I think that's quite different. I don't think that makes you a misanthrope. I think that just um, kind of 
gives you, uh, like you said, it gives you a sort of like dispositional orientation to other people. But I don't think that's misanthropy unless it's like, unless it's something that has kind of habitually um, ingrained itself into your psychobiological embodied existence. But but that seems to be um, a major, major exception. And I'm not saying that that person at an individual level somehow is like, contradictory in his or her position that they can't be a good socialist. But I would argue that in order to be a good socialist, it would be warring with that tendency and with that skepticism. And I think that would make a real productive point of tension. And I think that that's actually one of the key important insights that you get with like psychoanalytic readings of Marxism is is it's partly working through subjectivity, which is something that's lacking in a lot of, I think, classical Marxist formulations. And when you talk about subjectivity and when you're thinking about the constitution of the subject, then you start to have to worry about these sorts of issues is um, kind of like, how do you as a subject in the midst of a world that is unjust and filled with suffering, how do you continue to strive to overcome that? Um, It's through the process of being committed to the vision of what the human could potentially be that you do that. And so I think in order to be a good socialist, it almost necessitates um, the overcoming of misanthropy. Does that make sense? Yeah, I like that a lot. I like the idea of the productive tension there because I said earlier that, or a moment ago that, it's almost like there's some sense in which you kind of have to be a little bit misanthropic to be a good socialist. And I think what I meant by that I was getting at is exactly what you just kind of laid out there, that if you have this kind of Pollyanna-ish approach to humanity, um, that's not going to in any way really kind of sharpen your socialist tendencies, right? It's just going to be kind of a pie in the sky, um, you know, uh, idealistic form of, of socialism, which is not necessarily going to be all that productive and politically, but if you can actually have this tension of a bit of misanthropy in your constitution to go against your sort of, you know, ideological um, value of uh, a better political system, a more socialist or more equal political system, then I think that can actually be a productive tension and help you really kind of overcome and, and cause you to think long and hard about the things that you value. So yeah, I think that those two things really can go hand in hand. If you're talking about the um, sort of intellectual versus the dispositional aspects, but at the same time, yeah, I don't think you can really be a principled, a full-on principled misanthrope as like a, as like a, a first ethical principle or something, mm. and be a socialist. Something that works. Yeah, I kind of want to go even one step further because I developed this in my book actually, where I I take Sartre's notion of seriality and I kind of press it to maybe terrain that he himself didn't intend, but that I think it it can logically move towards to help us understand um, what I actually call like the inhumanity. And Sartre does use this term. He says that under certain conditions, let's say under the conditions of capitalism, that there is this serial reproduction of inhumanity. And I would actually say then that I think that's the condition out of which the spark to life of socialism emerges. So rather than maybe misanthropy, I would say it's like an ananthropy right? It's it's the negation of the human that makes you realize, oh, we aren't human. We aren't this ideal that we think we are. We aren't living up to, insert signifier here, species being the human, the ideal, the heaven, um, salvation, liberation, whatever it is. We aren't reaching those ideals. And it's the condition of being aware and being attuned 
to the depths of your alienation from that target, not depths of alienation from a true being that you or a, a true status that you once um or that you once exhibited. It's not a fall from Eden. It actually it reverses the order. Rather than looking pa uh, backward, it's looking let's say outward uh, or maybe forward. I don't know if I like the temporal um, metaphor, but it's looking not backwards. That's for sure. It's looking um, in, a, in a different sort of way, not from the past that we've fallen from, but recognizing that our condition has never actually lived up to the standard that we supposedly tout for ourselves. So it starts with ananthropy and that that is the condition that maybe can instigate or heighten the predicament in which we find ourselves that can spark us to life, to motivate us to overcome that ananthropy as we seek socialism. Yeah, I think that all makes sense. And then just to add again, um, one thing that's kind of tangential to that is there's a sense in which you can kind of have a, a hatred for man under a non-ideal system because you yeah. think that in some sense human nature is interpolated by the social system in which it finds itself, right? Yeah. Um, and then that can be a way of spurring you on to want to change a uh, human being, right? What it yeah. means to be human. So, that, yeah, that again all gets to like this contingency at the heart of what it means to be a person. So uh, if you think human nature is invaluable and absolute, then yeah, I mean, that's going to be a problem. Right. Uh, misanthropy is going to be a problem, but you don't necessarily have to think that. Mm. Yeah, I, re I really like that. Yeah, good question. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Dobro. Uh, next one's from Daniel La Venture. Uh, basically, my question concerns how the zombie genre depicts the non-human. I think it's a serious mistake to depict the non-human other as dangerous, evil, or chaotic. Because humanity is inseparable from the non-human, the non-human land we live on, the non-human food we grow and eat, the non-human bacteria in your gut that digest the food for you. Hmm. Um, so does the zombie genre rely on a narrative that pits human civilization against non-human nature? If you don't accept that binary, what happens to the zombie genre? How might we artistically render a vision of society that doesn't see the non-human as antagonistic on film? Interesting. Um... There are so many interesting readings of the zombie genre uh, from zombies being like a good analog for the proletariat to zombies being um, the real of capital to something that I've been thinking about a lot lately, the zombie genre being a sort of um, narrativized version of... Uh, the algorithmic obsession with controlling uncertainty. So think of, you know, the apocalyptic outbreak that infects everybody and um, kind of uh, map that onto something similar with the algorithmic pricing models used in finance uh, to mitigate the uncertainty of collapse or the uncertainty of the future. Um, so I think that you get something kind of similar with the zombie genre, that it's priming us to uh, to always ward off that uncertainty, the other, um, the radical other of whatever it is, the otherness of the future, the otherness of um, the other race or the otherness of the other species, the otherness of the earth, of the material, something like that. I think that's really interesting. But um, I don't know, does he mention, he does mention Donna Haraway, doesn't he, actually, in, in the next bit? He does. So interestingly, I just finished, um, I'm working on a chapter for an edited volume, and one of the resources that I draw from is uh, some writing by Donna Haraway. Donna Haraway, uh, she wrote a book called Staying with the Trouble, and then she 
um, has also written some articles and given some talks that are uh, similarly themed in which she talks about like thinking from the Gorgon and the Tentacular and um, thinking uh, the Cthulhu, not Cthulhu scene is what she calls it, which is like this spider that she talks about. And that's where she talks about like the Tentacular as well. But thinking from... Um, thinking from uh, the perspective of these non-human earthly entities and a sympoietic relationship with everything else and how if we can think in that way, then we sort of eradicate the subject-object distinction or the nature-culture distinction. And that helps us to kind of connect with and realize the interrelationship between everything as we humans, like uh, Daniel says, like as we humans are composed of these networks and machinic assemblages of, you know, gut bacteria and, uh, uh, and all the various like bacteria that's on our skin and all the various weird chemical processes that are transporting, uh, various like blood cells all around our bodies. And that these are just these really complex machinic assemblages and, um, that we ourselves are complex machinic assemblages, uh, as well as the chair that I'm sitting in, the desk that I'm sitting in, and in the room that I'm sitting in, in the city, and the state, and the globe, and that they're all interrelated. And if we can attune ourselves in that way, that that helps us to kind of overcome the othering of the other, right? And that we don't view them as other in a in a negative sense or a distinguishing sense. So I think, yeah, the zombie genre, I don't know, maybe it does kind of, I don't know, condition us or feed into that tendency to uh, to kind of like ward off the other as this thing that needs to be controlled or managed or mitigated somehow. And I think of it in terms of like some sort of algorithm, a narrative algorithm. You know, you have the plot and you have all the characters and all the characters have their skill set. And those skill sets are just various, the variables that you plug into your formula so that you can overcome and beat the zombies. You know, you got your A and your B and your C and your D and they all come together. And then that equals X, and X is how you survive the zombie apocalypse, how you kill them or whatever. So it's just a narrativized algorithm to kind of like um, mitigate uncertainty or defeat the other. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's kind of like the the Walking Dead model, even though I haven't watched that show in years, um, <laughs> of looking at zombies, which is kind of the most boring way of doing it, right? Um, but it doesn't have to be that way, and it certainly wasn't always that way. I mean, George Romero wasn't the first one person to like use zombies, right, in literature or anything, but he was the, really the, the kind of breaking point in terms of popularizing the idea in America. Because he coins the term, right? Did he? I thought it came from like 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 Haitian uh, stuff. Oh, I don't know. I thought I, century. I thought that this, the word zombie is coined from Night of the Living Dead, but maybe I mean not 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 the phenomenon, but the actual word as we kind of understand it. I thought he kind of created it, but it doesn't matter. I don't know. I think like Fellow Cutie had a. Had a record called Zombie, which I think came out maybe before, or maybe it came oh, okay. out a little after. Oh, maybe. I don't remember. But anyway, um, in terms of how it's depicted in the film, certainly Romero is the point of origin there for American cinema. And he certainly didn't think of it in terms of this uh, human non human distinction, right? I mean, he very purposefully and not so subtly portrays zombies as like an outgrowth of how human beings exist under consumer capitalism, right? Mm. It's, a, it's a critique of society, American society specifically, that he has in mind there. So it's very on the nose and not super subtle and not super nuanced, but it's definitely a creative way of thinking about it. And, and, and you can say maybe even Romero sets it up to look like that kind of, you know, nature versus civilization distinction and mm. those two being antagonistic and then breaks it down. So you get surprised by it in the end. Um, so yeah, I think there's a tendency to view it in that, um, 
you know, human versus non-human in a battle over survival kind of way. And lots of popular zombie movies and shows kind of fall into that because it's so easy. But it's mm-hmm. absolutely the most boring way of doing it. And there's plenty of other examples of using zombies differently. It's kind of why it still held, holds some cachet, I think, right? Even though it, it's ubiquitous now. Zombies are in everything. Um, they were in fucking Game of Thrones. Um, <laughs> you can be creative with them because they're ambiguous. Hmm. Right? Now they're I, both scary and a certain type that you can easily recognize, but are also ambiguous enough that you can play with it. Yeah. You know, there's not enough zombie stuff, zombie content, where people actually care that these are human beings still. But I there's know, a... Right? There's a film that I recommended to you a long time ago, and you gave me shit for it. And I stand true to this recommendation. Is it fucking Warm Bodies? Warm Bodies is an interesting <laughs> zombie movie because there's still there's st- <laughs> there's still human, bro, and their their hearts are still beating. They're still warm, and all they need is that empathic, telepathic spark to life to bring them back to the state of the human, and maybe even to become human for the very first time. Maybe that's what we're learning from this. Think about this in Sartrean terms, or even bed in terms you have the event which is the spark to life and it's something that's contagious and it empathically and telepathically can inflect into other people and then it can inform them on their journey as they spark back to life that's amazing that's you being serialized and being turned into the inhuman body under the conditions of capitalism and then because of the truth condition of love you are sparked back to life that's what warm bodies is about god damn it i think it's a brilliant film you would like that movie. <laughs> no, no. As a matter of like a, as like a, what you're doing, the Zizekian reading, which is just kind of reading it on paper and coming up with an interesting interpretation of it. That's, that's all well and good. I would love to watch that movie. In fact, I think I watched it the first time because it sounded so interesting. And then I just, I think I just hated the execution of it or something, but yeah, whatever. Yeah. I mean, cause you know, it is, it's kind of just a, <laughs> a, a saccharine rom com kind of thing, but, but you know, Teresa Palmer's hot as fuck, and Nicholas Holt's an all right actor, and it's was fun. it Nicholas Holt who was the guy in that? I yeah, don't remember that. Yeah, <laughs> yes, it is. All right, am I up for the next question? Yeah. All right, cool. So this was from Twitter. Alvar says, "Should HK people? I'm assuming that's Hong Kong. Should Hong Kong people still strive for democracy when it is often claimed that one, the Chinese Communist Party model?" is more efficient, thus more prosperity, and two, Western democracy is failing. This is a heavy fucking question, bro. Yeah, dude. So my thought is, um, obviously we can't go super deep into this because one, this is the 100th episode and we're kind of bullshitting. But also two, yeah, we're not going to be experts on uh, the political situation between Hong Kong and and China right now. But I think what I'd want to do is take the philosophical stance here and deny one of these premises, if not both. Um, the first one being that the Chinese Communist Party model is more efficient than, I'm assuming it means more efficient than Western democracy in terms of like GDP growth, which is, I guess, the sense in which that argument can be made. And so there's more prosperity and thus more avenues for eventually sharing that prosperity, I guess, is the assumption here. And I think that's something I would definitely deny. Um or is it, of, is it is it that it's that the Chinese model is on the upward swing and that growth has slowed, productivity is slowed, inequality is increasing in the the capitalist liberal demo- or the liberal capitalist democracies, 
So maybe is that the the point of comparison? Yeah, I think it's it's saying it's more efficient than Western democracy is, um, at least right now, if not just in yeah, theory. In the I context, I, I would, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I think I would deny both sides of that premise, really. Okay. One being the idea that we should value efficiency and prosperity as the number mm. one um, sort of goal of social formation, because I don't necessarily think that's the case. I'm not pointing to China specifically, but just the general point. Um, I don't know that our number one goal should be let's create the most prosperity possible and then whatever follows from that will be better off. Um, certainly not the case. I think something along the lines of like justice or fairness or something should be a Something else, some other value should be the number one um, goal of social formation before like GDP growth. But then also the idea that this, the, the, that model is more efficient than the Western democracy model assumes that Western democracies are democracies or that the reason they're failing mm. is because they're democracies. Which mm. I think is exactly wrong. Um, I'm not saying that democracy is necessarily going to be the best model of a political system for human beings, but the reason... Western democracies are failing is not because of their democratic features. It's really mostly because of their non-democratic features, right? Especially when it comes to economic democracy, right? So, I mean, just look at, for an example, obvious, an obvious example is Trump. Trump getting to become president had not so much to do with democracy as it had to do with the features of the American constitutional system, which are anti-democratic, like the Electoral mm-hmm. College and the Senate. So, um, you know, unequal representation there is what allows Trump to be president. So, and you can go through a host of all sorts of other things that are examples of how the non-democratic features of our system tend to be the things that cause the most problems or at least create the most difficulties or the most sort of poor or bad outcomes. Um, I'm sure in the UK, you can come up with examples of that as well. So that doesn't mean necessarily that the opposite is true and that therefore some form of like Western liberal democracy is the end all be all. And that um, China's model has nothing of value for us. That's absolutely not the case either. But mm-hmm. I, I think I would deny the, um, at least reject the argument that Hong Kong should just kind of fall in line with China because it's on the um, like long-term economic upswing while Western democracy is falling towards fascism or something. Yeah, we also need to remember too that China's debt burden is I mean something ridiculous. Like I think it's approaching 300% of GDP. Um so they're able to maintain it at the moment and and perhaps perpetually we'll see how it plays out, but it depends on what you mean also by efficient. Um we also need to recognize that there are people in the western part of the country, the Uyghur people in Xinjiang, Xinjiang that um are being exploited, that they're being oppressed. They're basically being used like lab rats for the rollout of new surveillance technologies that the uh, Chinese corporations are working in cahoots with Western corporations. Uh, We also need to recognize the global supply chains that are benefiting the CCP model, which are largely dependent on these Western democracies. So part of the reason that the Western democracies are becoming less productive Uh, in their post-industrial state is precisely because they've outsourced the processes of capitalization, industrialization to places like China, India, Singapore, um, Indonesia, these places that are building up um, these uh, these proletarian classes and maybe even middle uh, middle classes. So we need to recognize the sort of like geopolitical integration of these uh, nation states and of these economies uh, to really kind of, I think, tackle that question, even prima facie, without 
without sort of questioning the question as Troy did as well. So I think for me, the question, if we're just going to address it on the surface, my issue is comes down to like national sovereignty or regional sovereignty. And if these protests really kind of were sparked because of the extradition laws that China were threatening Hong Kong with, the, the reason that they were responding so stridently was because of a threat to autonomy and a threat to national sovereignty. And I know that this is a much richer and uh, more complicated question than we can really delve into right here um, in terms of the relationship between Hong Kong and, and mainland China. Um, but, you know, I, I think there is something to speak about also the, the sort of principled value of having national um, sovereignty or some sort of level of regional autonomy that isn't infringed upon by these lar larger political power structures. So, you know, um, I think I get what the question is kind of intimating at regarding um, the, the failing of uh, Western democracies and the supposed success of the CCP model in relation to Hong Kong striving for uh, a sort of increase in their democratic and um, autonomous sovereignty. But I just think that there are certain principles that I still am not ready to let go of um, for pragmatic purposes or for for the sake of uh, efficiency under the current economic regime. Yep, yep. I agree with all that. All right, next question is from Neil Gorman on Twitter. Uh, what was the first album you bought with your own money? <laughs> Dude, I love this. I, uh, I saw this this morning. I got really excited, and I know exactly what it is, and I actually was listening to this band all day. MXPX Teenage Politics. <laughs> oh, yeah. I forgot. I knew about this. <laughs> Teenage Mix motherfucking... Picks. I remember... Yeah, Magnified Plaid, baby. Um, and uh, I remember the day that I listened to them. It was like... Uh, it was like a Saul on the road to Damascus moment because <laughs> do you remember the Christian bookstores, Sunshine, Sunshine bookstores, Troy? No, I don't. So I'm they're, not sure they, I ever stepped foot in any one of those. They were a <laughs> chain of Christian bookstores, but they would also have little listening booths for Christian music where you could go in and listen to the new CD releases. So from when I was like, let's say 12, 13, 14, one of the highlights of my Sundays when I was with my dad going to church was that we would sometimes get a Jamba Juice and get a smoothie and then go to Sunshine and we would look through books and I would go listen to the music. And that was where I found punk rock music was really through MXPX. It was MXPX first and then that's how I found like Blink-182, Assorted Jelly Beans, Pulley, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it was MXPX first in Teenage Politics. And when I listened to it, it was like the scales came off my ears. I was going to say off my eyes, but this was my ears in this case. And I was able to hear for the first time something totally different. You know, this was the first time that it was my music. It wasn't music that my parents liked. It wasn't music that I was exposed to from the radio. This was something that I found on my own even though, of course, I found it in a Christian bookstore because my parents took me there. But still, it was something that they weren't into. It wasn't their style of music. And uh, yeah, but so MXPX, Teenage Politics. What year was that? God, it must have been 95, 96. Okay, cool. It's the same year for me. So they're about okay. the exact same age. Yeah. Yeah, so for me, I bought three CDs from the uh, warehouse that was near my the house where I grew up in. Um in 95 or 96 i can't remember exactly when those three cds were offspring smash oh yeah rancid and out, and out come the wolves and uh green days dookie 
oh, all yeah. three of which I still have. So I'm pretty proud of that. Oh, you have those actual original CDs still? I have the actual CDs. I think I I lost the case for Offspring Smash, but okay. when I just did the move, I actually found three of these in various, probably unplayable conditions at this point. Oh, that's but, um, so cool. Yeah, it's great. And I'm still actually proud of all three of those. I think that um, Offspring and Green Day suck now, uh, especially Green Day. But Dookie and Smash are awesome CDs, especially Smash. I think that really holds up as like a, a mid nineties, um, you know, kind of pop punk record. But mm. uh, yeah, I love those three rec- those three CDs, and I listened to them um, just ceaselessly in the mid nineties. And I, I had a lot of really bad music that I liked in my kind of um, preteen and early teen years. Um, mm-hmm. I had a new metal phase, which I'm definitely not proud of. <laughs> But I'm glad that the first things uh, that I bought with my own money were those three CDs. So I had something to go back to and say, you know, I'm still proud of one impulse I had as a child. Yeah, that's amazing, man. I remember there was this dude, I didn't like him. Uh, He was kind of a douchebag when I was in sixth grade. I don't remember his last name, but his first name was Brian. And he had like that that blonde, surfery, Jonathan Taylor Thomas parted down the middle thing. Remember that was super popular in the mid-90s? Oh, yeah early to mid nineties. He had that shit. And I just remember he used to have, this was when you would have like your binder and you know how it had that like plastic sleeve on the front. You could like stick pictures and shit on the inside of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and he had, he had um, offspring. And that was the first time that I'd heard of offspring was because of his binder. And I didn't like the dude, but I remembered, I remembered looking at that and he was just obsessed with it, you know? And I think he would wear like offspring shirts and stuff like that. And so that was like the first time that I had ever heard of Offspring. And then I think I heard their music. But yeah, man, it was around the same time that I got introduced to Offspring as well. Is that Gotta Get Away From Me? Is that on that album? Or is that Ixnay on the Ombre? Uh, I think it is. Gosh, I can't remember. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Yeah, all those songs. I mean, we, we, we had K-Rock in Los Angeles in the mid-90s. So those were all CDs that almost every song was was the hit. Yeah. All right. I'm laughing because I'm looking at the next question. <laughs> All right. Go for okay. It. All right. So from Gorksty, is eating oh. ass, is eating ass kosher or halal? <laughs> is this an inclusive or, or an exclusive or? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but I really want to know what you think, what you think on this, Troy. Yeah. I'm glad that ended up you reading the question. So I have to answer it first. Lovely. Yeah, me too. Um, so here's, I'm going to do the philosophical thing. And before I even try to answer the question, break it down a little bit. Um, so from my limited knowledge of uh, dietary restrictions in you know, Judaism and Islam, um, kosher has a little bit more to do with the way you prepare food. Although there are some foods that you just can't eat because they're just not kosher. And then halal is more about the kinds of foods you can eat than it is about like prep, right? Just generally speaking. Doesn't it also have to do with like how you kill the animal? Yeah, there's some of that too, but that's more in, um, like in kosher, you have to like bleed out the animal entirely, right? I think. And I know that I, th- for, I think that um, in halal, you have to kill through a cut in the jugular vein. The, yeah, I think uh, both. I think both are concerned the with the artery and the windpipe. Don't make the animal suffer. Yeah, exactly. It's got to be a swift, a swift cut. Yeah. So, so, so here's how we tie this into um, the question at hand. Okay. Doesn't it? And ma- doesn't matter what's what's like the person has consumed, right? The passive recipient of the 
of the act, the sexual Wait, acting you... question. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the it's so it's more it's more about how you prepare your ass to be eaten. Yeah, exactly. When it comes to like, yeah, like the kosher stuff, right? Like you can't mix dairy and meat for kosher, right? So if that person's been like drinking milk and eating burgers, then that shit ain't kosher. That's true, man. Um, you got a vegan? What about vegan uh, people? Can you eat their ass just all day? You'd know that. I don't. I don't know that shit, dude. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I guess you can, right? Because vegan is automatically kosher and halal. Well, I guess the prep stuff matters because you can be a vegan and mix stuff. Yeah, you gotta. Yeah, They're not dairy and meat, so I don't know. Yeah. What would, be, what would be like the the non halal way of eating ass? Uh, I mean, going out and getting a big uh, in and out double double and some shake and shit like that. If if you're just like a big, you know, you eat a lot of pig and pork and whatever types of poultry that are there. Kind of is all poultry kosher and halal? Isn't there some kinds of bird that you're not supposed to eat? Yeah, there's some kind of fowl you can't eat for kosher. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's I think it's just making. I'll be completely honest. I have no clue how to answer this question. So this is <laughs> this is where I'm going to go on this one. I'm going to go on this one. That uh, I'm going to go the opposite. I'm going to say it's not about the preparation of the ass that's important, but it's more about your state of mind when you go into it. Because oh, you know, spiritualize it, dude. These yeah, are yeah. Rituals, man. Yeah, yeah. But but it's all about like your position and your piety before uh, the one right before god or before the ass. So I think it's mostly important about how you prostrate yourself prior to the prostate if you're gay or if you're a woman eating some ass. And if you're straight, there's no prostate that you're prostrating yourself before, but I think the play on words still kind of works. Um but it's about yeah, how are you, how are you pious to the ass, you know? Like you got to take care of it. You got to you've got to be faithful and give your fidelity to the ass when you do it with a with a clean heart, with a repentant heart, and um, you got to be really motivated to get in there and and recognize that you're doing this for the glory of the one, and the one is the ass. So, so you're doing like the Jesus thing in the New Testament where you're like, you have heard it said that thou shalt not <laughs> eat ass if the person has mixed dairy and meat. But I say unto you, have you right. mixed? sinfulness dairy and meat in your own heart before approaching um, the ass of the other that's right that's exactly it go in with a clear conscience and then just eat the ass because what god has made clean don't you deem unclean so this is definitely the question that's going to get us canceled thank you gortsky (laughs) all right next one uh what are your guilty pleasures oh um well, how do you define a guilty pleasure? Because this is my thing. Like a lot of times I'm not guilty about my pleasures. I just have pleasures. But okay, let's – okay, guilty pleasures, things that like maybe uh, people would tease me about. I love fucking Gilmore Girls. I have binge watched <laughs> – I've binge watched Gilmore Girls three times. I just finished actually last week. It's just really relaxing to fall asleep to. So I'll lay in bed and I'll throw on some Netflix Gilmore Girls and I'll maybe I'll get through an episode, maybe only part of an episode. But I just fucking love that town. I kind of want to just have a slowed down life where maybe I just run my own cafe and maybe, you know, 
host like poetry readings and teach philosophy classes upstairs and maybe do some uh, some mis- mixed martial arts training for self-defense with the local community. I mean, so I just envision myself in a town like Stars Hollow. So that's definitely one of my guilty pleasures. What's one of yours? And I'll think about one while you're talking. Yeah, so I think I don't necessarily have any guilty pleasures in terms of things I actually feel guilty about. But I think usually we don't mean that when we say guilty pleasure. What we're referencing is more things we aren't, things we enjoy that we're not principally or not principled about. And so we don't necessarily like tout it or you know publicize it. Yeah. And if that's the reference that more like weak version of guilty pleasure, then certainly I have several, one of which would just be my obvious obsession with like everything revolving around basketball and the NBA. Oh yeah. To the point where like, I actually care about the stupid like soap opera drama that revolves around the NBA. Like I actually yeah. really enjoy it in the same yeah. way someone enjoys like real housewives of whatever the fuck. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I get super into that and, and often like it because it's so silly and ridiculous and doesn't matter at all. And that's just enjoyable. Mm. Yeah. I mean, on the sports, on the sport tip, uh, MMA for me is a guilty pleasure because I still feel guilty about human beings beating the shit out of each other for sport. You know, Um, there is something very strange about your love for MMA and then your general like loving pacifist tendencies. I know. And I, I I think about this. Yeah. I think about this all the time. I know because I've never been like I've gone through phases where I myself have tried to be the tough guy. Like I've trained in mixed martial arts off and on since I was 17. And then when I was a kid, I did some judo and karate and stuff. So I've kind of I, I've practiced it myself, but I've never been the type that wants to like fuck somebody up. You know, I've I've tried that hat on. I've tried to wear it a few times and I've been in stupid situations where, yeah, fights have broken out and I've been responsible for some of them. And but it's just never really been me. It was always me trying to be something that I that I wasn't comfortable being, you know, I thought I had to be a dude or I had to impress a chick or I had to press another set of dudes or something like that, right? So it is weird that I, I do love MMA so much. Um, and I can try to justify it to myself that it there's a an artistry to it and there's a spirituality to it. And I do think there is. And, and I do think there's this amazing dance. And I think it's an amazing expression of athleticism. And I even would say artistry. But also it's dudes and chicks giving each other concussions and you would think that that would I would have a problem with that since I value the brain so much and like mind power. So I don't know. That's a guilty pleasure for me, for sure. That's so it's so funny, dude. Because as you're saying that, I'm thinking, man, I'm thinking the exact same thing about my love for basketball. Because I often talk about how compared to like American football or something, basketball is the beautiful game, right? It's got this constant movement mm-hmm. and passing, and it's like a like a complex network, and there's like a ballet or like a dance to it all. But then Honestly, dude, I like it when someone just dunks all over someone's face and shoves their <laughs> balls in their face. Like that's yeah. just awesome. And I freak out and yeah. jump off the couch when that happens. So yeah, yeah, that's that's not exactly like principled or reflective, but who gives a shit? It's awesome. No, sometimes you got to go limbic, you know? Um, <laughs> that's what you just go reptilian sometimes. It happens, man. What about food? Do you have guilty pleasures with food? I don't know, man. I guess like I'm like any person. I like to go get burgers and fries and I'm not necessarily like – super um i don't necessarily judge myself about it although i certainly don't i sometimes kind of wish i didn't like to eat junk food like yeah. that sometimes yeah yeah but um i don't know i think maybe you have a little bit more to say about that than i do uh, I, I don't know man i mean i i fucking i got a sugar tooth like there's no reason that i'm in good shape because i i love fucking love candy i just have one i have a crazy metabolism and two i just i tend to work out uh 
even if there are spells when I'm not working out, I can get into shape really quickly. And sometimes I take advantage of that. As a matter of fact, I'm just coming out of one of these times where I was, I lit, I shit you not, man. I swear to God, I was doing this on purpose that I was trying to eat as poorly as possible for as long as possible to see how bad my body would get. And really at the end of it, I was kind of like, I still look all right, man. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm back into being in like great shape and I shit you not in six weeks. Like I've already got like all my definition and my abs again. And I'm like, this is fucking ridiculous. So I, I mean, I, I know that people listening are probably going to be like, fuck you, dude. And <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, but, but I think that I, I have a guilty pleasure with sweets, man. I fucking love, you know what I love? Um, I mean, obviously chocolates and everything like that, but I really love, um, and I love ice cream. I fucking love ice cream. Oh, dude. But, I, yeah, I got to talk about that in a second. Okay, yeah. But you know what I really love is they have like these strawberry, it's like a sour strawberry candy. And then on the inside, there's like that white creamy filling. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like a chewy candy. Uh, maybe, I don't know if it's like, I, I found them when I was living abroad. So I didn't even eat them when I was younger. But it's like a strawberry kind of, almost like a licorice kind of thing. And then on the inside is like a white kind of creamy substance. And then there's like uh, kind of soury, sugary stuff on the outside of it. And they're these tubes, these long tubes, like a licorice stick. Fuck, man. I could eat 30 of those at a time. They are <laughs> so good. So ice yeah, cream. So, yeah, for me, ice cream is also a huge, huge stumbling block. And that, I don't, <laughs> I don't like candy so much, but like gelato or kind of like uh, gourmet ice cream. Yeah, it's, it's, it's to the point where I literally have told people that I've lived with or been close to that they know that I love ice cream. And so they'll sometimes get it for me as like a gift or whatever, right? To be nice. And it's just like, I have literally no self-control when it comes to ice cream. So I have to buy those, you know, those little ones that come in like, what is it? Like a quarter or a third of a cup of yeah, ice yeah. cream. Yeah. But they cost like a dollar and a half. So it's a ridiculous yeah, yeah. overcharge for that much ice cream. But I have to get those because otherwise I'll eat the entire like yeah. a pint or quart or whatever in one sitting. It's impossible to stop. Totally. And I think I generally have above average self-control in other areas in life, but that area, literally none. Like a dog, I'll eat until I die. What about root beer floats? No, not so much. I mean, I, I don't dislike them, but I don't go out of my way for that. Oh, Is dude. that for you? Oh, who yeah, makes, Who makes the best root beer float? A&W, motherfucker. Yeah, I figured. Come on, dude. I, dude, they have A&Ws out here. I'm pretty excited about that. Oh, man, that's... I was just going to say, as a child, I used to go to them. And the old, the last one that I remember in Southern California, it's out in the middle of the desert on the way to like Indio, I think. There's an actual A&W store, like a brick and mortar store. Oh, fuck. But I used to go to like, you know, festivals and rodeos and shit like that. And they'd have like the little pop-up portable one with the wooden barrels. And oh, fuck. Oh, I'm salivating. But okay, I do have guilty pleasure for sure. It's getting fucked up. That's guilty pleasure. <laughs> Drinking just... 15 shots of whiskey and a few beers and ending up at the casino till seven in the morning. That's a fucking guilty pleasure. Sometimes I can also be a bit of a hoe. That's a guilty pleasure. Like I've got some guilty pleasures that I tap into the hedonist style of life quite a bit. I think I have a lot of what I guess you could call guilty pleasures. I just don't feel guilty about them, you know, but I know socially I might be judged for certain things. Actually, the one I do feel guilty about is eating ice cream and shitty food and McDonald's and stuff like that. Cause then I know the next day I feel like shit. And I'm like, my body's just mad at me. Whereas if I go out and I go on a bender and I'm fucking hungover, you might get the hangover blues or something like that. But if you hook up with someone and you guys have a fantastic time, there's no guilt there. It's wonderful. You just had a brilliant night and you explored the heights of ecstasy with one another. That's fucking fantastic. Dude, here's the thing. So this says a lot about 
who someone is as a person, right? You eat McDonald's or some shitty junk food, right? And you wake up the next morning and feel like like shit. You <laughs> think that your body's mad at you. Instead, I'm gonna say you should rail against like God or nature and be like, you should have made my body so I can enjoy the things that are awesome and that I love to eat. Mm. Rather than being like, oh, my body's mad at me, so I have to like seek penance from it. Come on, how man. do you do that? Dude, rail against the gods. That's the way to do it. Yeah, but how do you do that so that it actually practically changes your chemistry, your biochemistry? Oh, it, it absolutely does not. But that's the <laughs> thing you should do. You don't think you can train yourself like you can for <laughs> like extreme cold or something like that? You can't train yourself for extreme carb overload? Oh, dude, I bet you there's like a there's got to be some movement out there that's like training your uh, body to just do supersize me style. Eat oh, Jesus. Day. Yeah. Amazing. All right. Great question. Am I on? Am I doing the next one? Yeah. Okay. Uh, this is from at Joyce Banachek. Will cryptocurrencies improve the world? Fuck, dude. I don't know. <sighs> Maybe. Do you have? Not. Do you care? <laughs> do, yeah. Do you do you care much about cryptocurrencies? Not really. I mean, I don't want to talk too much about this because that's like inviting people to get in our mentions and talk about you know how cryptocurrencies saved their life and they've joined the the cult of whatever the new one is. Yeah. Um. But I mean, the 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 basic argument you keep hearing a lot of times, and this is definitely not everybody. So I'm not saying all cryptocurrencies are only about this or that or whatever. But um, the idea that just we shouldn't, or like you can democratize or something finance by having these cryptocurrencies is kind of like an anarcho uh, model of looking at currency or finance. Just generally, I think is kind of a wrong-headed way of looking at things, and that there's a sense in which I would think that national sovereignty over currency over currency is actually more democratic in a good mm -hmm. way, and um, that it can allow um, the people as a whole to kind of govern how a currency works. Does that mean we have that with our current national um, uh, sovereignty over currency? Absolutely not. I think mm -hmm. we can agree there. But the the basic sort of um, the sort of ethical argument that you keep hearing, I think, is seems a little bit wrong-headed on that service. I, I mean, I don't have any super deep thoughts about this, but what do you think? I mean, I'll be honest. I think it completely misunderstands power and how value is created through cultural meaning and cultural capital, social capital, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so Warren Mosler is one of the kind of key founding voices for MMT, uh, which comes out of like ABBA Learners School and um, in uh, the new, new orthodoxy of economics in the 20th century. But anyway, Mosler kind of makes this point. He's like, look, if, uh, if I write on like my business card and, uh, and I give you my business card and uh, I say that this is, this is the currency that you have to use now, he's like, there's, there's nothing that's going to enforce that. He's like, but if there's a guy standing outside the door with a gun saying, yeah, you have to use that, then you're kind of, that, that gives that thing value. It kind of backs it right so there has to be some imposition of power or force or something like that and so he talks about like uh, the importance of taxation and the importance of a, uh, a sort of sovereign government behind the, the the sovereign currency that legitimates if you will the currency and cryptocurrency doesn't have that it runs into that problem right so is it possible that people are going to be able to in small scale trade with these uh, anarchic um, non-sovereign forms of currency? Sure, sure, absolutely. Will they even gain some semblance of market share? 
Yeah, probably. I mean, they'll be able to function as an outlier, but will they be able to actually take hold and become like the primary, let's say, measure of value or exchange of value or anything like that that we typically associate with money more broadly? I'm not very convinced. And I'll be completely honest, I think that if you just look at the speculative bubble for Bitcoin and Ethereum and things like that, they're they're far more interesting as... Um, tokens for speculation than they are for actual the use and exchange like it's it's really pointless you you will not or if you do you're a fucking idiot if you're using bitcoin to trade with right now because i mean i haven't looked in the past month or something like that but bitcoin one bitcoin is worth thousands of dollars so you're obviously not going to take five bitcoins to go buy anything online because that's potentially a hundred thousand dollars I mean, I don't know if it's 20000 It was 20000 before. It's probably somewhere in like the $13,000, $14,000 range in the U.S. now. But still, you're not going to spend fifty dollars to $70,000 on something unless it's a fucking car that it's worth on the market value in the United States currency or whatever currency it is that you're translating it into. But then again, what you're doing is you're still measuring the value of the Bitcoin in relation to the sovereign currency that you're supposedly seeking autonomy from. So you're going to have to do a lot more in order to actually gain the foothold in the market and in the circulate, the, the circulatory networks um, than what is currently in place if you're going to actually make cryptocurrencies viable. With that said, the technology behind Bitcoin, for example, blockchain technology, I do think is really interesting. And I'm very curious to see how these new systems of computer trust um, and contract records are going to positively impact all sorts of different types of transactional regimes. So that's interesting. But will cryptocurrencies improve the world? Will they change the world? Uh, I think the jury's still out. And I'm, I'm a little skeptical. I'm quite a bit skeptical. Yeah, I think philosophically for me, there's really this um, impulse towards assuming that greater decentralization equals more freedom, a more kind of valuable freedom. Yeah. And that's, I think, the assumption that I want to question, whether um, blockchain has anything really to do with that. I think there's some there's some um, crossover there, but it's certainly not absolute or anything. But uh, I want to question the idea that necessarily decentralization means more freedom. And I think we're seeing even just in the first fruits here of the effect that uh, these cryptocurrencies are having on um, different areas of finance and whatnot, is that it, it turns out that sometimes having these um, sort of ledgers um, that are not you know, centralized in like a government or a national banking system can, can even lead to less freedom in certain ways. I mean, mm -hmm. um, I don't remember the exact story, but wasn't there some situations where like cops basically can break down your door and get access to um, a lot of these ledgers? Yeah, the FBI, the FBI have like millions and millions of dollars worth of Bitcoin that they've confiscated from, you know, illicit deals and things like that. Yeah. And so that's, you know, maybe the argument is that that's just because of the parasitic nature of like centralized political systems on cryptocurrency. but. Um, I don't want to get too in the weeds with that, but the just the, the general assumption of of centralization is bad and decentralization is good is you know it's not neither that nor the um, reverse is necessarily true. Yeah. So it has to be a more complicated argument about which areas of centralization and decentralization are helpful. Yeah, and we also need to think too that centralization and decentralization aren't necessarily these perfectly bifurcated um, paradigms. 
You know, yeah. we think about decentralization, but you're decentralized, decentralized within a singular centralized platform, which is the World Wide Web. Now, there are ways, obviously, in the dark web or in other things to get around that. But as things are being consolidated, as the pathways onto the Internet are being consolidated via platforms, just look at what Facebook is doing by trying to institute their uh, own cryptocurrency. You don't think that other platforms are going to start to institute that? So what I think you're going to start to see is the future of cryptocurrency isn't going to be this like radically autonomous, quote unquote, decentralized thing, but it's going to be different consolidations of of centralized and consolidated power structures that are the platforms that back their own cryptocurrencies. And I think that's going to be more likely. Well, you use your own Facebook bucks or Amazon bucks or whatever it is, and then you might be able to trade an Amazon buck for a Facebook or something along those lines. My point is I don't know exactly how it'll work, but I do know that the likelihood of it being based on some sort of platform that is pre-existent, that itself is a centralized and consolidated power structure, is far more likely than the kind of anarcho-capitalist utopic vision that a lot of the cryptocurrency um uh like advocates are trying to tout yeah and dennis rodman has one too so that's at least something in its favor weed bucks <laughs> or whatever it is noise do your thing all right um ricky asks what got you into philosophy love this question um so i mean our answers are probably going to be somewhat similar but for me I was studying in college to be a pastor at first and then kind of switched over to academic theology because of my interest in the academic and intellectual side of you know, the Christian religion. And eventually, like many other you know, past great philosophers, found that theology didn't answer the questions that I had. And in fact, I found constitutionally could not answer the questions I had. And so that means that you're going to move towards, you know, I think kind of theology's foundation, which is philosophy. And that at least, if maybe not answered the questions I have, asked the questions in the way that I had them in a way that I think could possibly be answered. And so um, I just automatically found myself being interested in the philosophers, um, the historical philosophers, the great ones when I was in college in a way that the theologians just didn't seem like they were being fully honest to me. Didn't seem like they were really asking the questions that would necessarily come up in theological um, dialogue and questioning. So it was really a kind of a natural transition from um, wanting to teach about religion to wanting to study uh, theology to then wanting to study philosophy. It was a very natural transition, and there were certainly moments where I had this, you know, great pains of dissatisfaction and alienation and stuff in that process. It wasn't a purely smooth transition. But I think it was almost one that kind of had to happen in the, and that kind of a dialectical movement. Hmm. Do you remember who the first philosopher was that you really had a kind of intellectual love affair with? I mean, it probably had to be Plato, given that was it? I think the intro to philosophy class I took as a freshman in college, we were reading Plato and Aristotle to begin with, and I wasn't super interested in Aristotle. But reading Plato's dialogues, I was like, this is all I ever wanted, hmm. with someone to dialogue about these questions and i loved it and i just devoured it so yeah that had to be the first one for me what was it for you well i i will say i i can echo pretty much the same path that you outlined for yourself went to university to be a pastor then it was to be a theologian and then it shifted to philosophy um it was maybe a, a little bit different. I think it was kind of similar to you though. But for me, I just remember, I, I remember thinking to myself and I remember talking with people. I remember talking with my dad and other people who were like my elders in the church and stuff like that, saying that 
Like, do you realize, though, that these theological formulations are just borrowing from the philosophical tradition? Like, do you not realize? And they were like, that's not it at all. And I was like, no, like, <laughs> that's just Platonism. That's what that came from. You can trace this back historically, or I could even show you where the shift in the theological tradition happened when Descartes and the turn to the self happens. Like you can see how that then inflects into theology or vice versa. But the point was, is that it was, I had never thought of that before. I thought that theology was just something that kind of was uh, exhale, uh, exhaled, right? The, the sort of uh, expiration, uh, you know, inspiration of scripture, but that it's literally breathed out. Um, it's expired, breathed out by God. I thought that theology just kind of like fell into people's minds through the power of the Holy Spirit when it was good theology. And it was amazing for me to kind of just see the historical contingency of philosophical development that informed theology. And for me, the, the text that like, I don't know if I had a love affair with them, but the text that like really like swept me off my feet, it was two texts by Jean-Francois Lyotard, one, The Postmodern Condition, and then The Postmodern Explained, which is a series of like um, letters and clarifications that he issues in response to criticisms that he received from The Postmodern Condition. And um, it was because, you know, we were told what postmodernism supposedly was as this big threat that was going to take down the inerrancy of scripture and moral certitude and things like that. And then when I started to actually see what postmodernism was, like it started to kind of make me think that, oh, wow, these people were either lying to me or they don't know what they're fucking talking about. And if they don't know what they're talking about, but yet they're speaking so authoritatively as though they do, then there must be something inherently wrong with this theological position. So philosophy for me always was kind of philosophizing with a hammer, which I didn't realize till later was a very Nietzschean idea. But so for me, maybe that's why I'm attracted to like, the postmodern, post-structuralist, post-phenomenological um, milieu of philosophy is because it always kind of has that kind of hammer-like approach to the status quo. Deleuze famously says that my only ally is paradox, and he means that in the literal sense of paradoxa, against doxa, and I love that idea. Yeah, this is a really good point, I think. We, I think we've often kind of held as a mantra that if someone says they don't have a metaphysics, it means they have a bad metaphysics. <laughs> yeah. And that point being that anyone who, you know, does work in like theology, right. And claims they don't have philosophical concepts that underpin that is really either lying to you, selling you something or is ignorant. Mm. Um, so you got to find out which of those it is, right. Mm. Everybody has philosophical concepts behind whatever it is they think or believe if they think or believe anything. And so the, the, the theological um, kind of milieu we were in was one that totally tried to eschew any connection to philosophy whatsoever, mm. right? That was sort of, you know, a, a devil's errand to go down the philosophical route. All you need is the theological. And we, I think, found out pretty quickly that that's just, that's just false. They have an absolute, have a, have a metaphysics behind all this. And it's just assumed and unquestioned. And that's the most dangerous kind because it's not reflected upon mm. and dealt with. And so when you realize that, you can't help but be skeptical of everything else that they say because you've kind of hit upon this kind of foundational untruth um, at the bottom of things. So yeah, that, that, that's, I think, the kind of the ground of why the transition from theology to philosophy had to happen for the sake of you know, intellectual sanity, you know? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, cue up the, fire up the next one. All right, next one. Uh, I have no idea how to answer this, but I'll let you start. Uh, the question is from Unknown. Uh, can y'all overanalyze modern memes? Like, I don't know. You can apply absurdist art themes or catharsis or even some psychoanalytical <laughs> libido. 
to get attention from ship posting. I think this was Gorksty again. I just didn't okay. write it down. Um, can y'all overanalyze modern memes? Do, do you have any memes that you like in particular? I'm trying to think. Give me a meme. Yeah, we, we could know, totally dude. we could totally there are a over lot of memes it. out there. There's a shitload of them. Um, do, do, I, is there? I, I do like the Spider Man pointing at Spider Man meme. That's a good one. Explain it. What is it? It's like whenever two things end up being the same in some way. And they just come upon that realization. They do the meme, which is Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I will will say this. One of the things I struggle with memes is this, is I would say the the center of my book is that I'm fleshing out this term that I talked about earlier in this episode uh, that Sartre uses called seriality. And in a very simple sense, seriality is this reproductive tendency uh, to mimetically echo uh, within what we might call uh, a context of the same, the same thoughts or feelings or actions over and over again. He talks about 19th century bourgeois France where uh, and bourgeois respectability. You had to be respectable, and so you perform your respectability-ness. And in your performance of respectability, everyone is doing the same thing. They're all playing the same game. Which, if you know anything about Sartre, this also refers to his earlier existentialist writings, um, to his notion of bad faith, right? You're denying your existential freedom by kind of playing the role. He talks about the waiter in a Parisian cafe who's playing the character of the uh, waiter, rather than kind of accepting his freedom, or the woman who's on the date, who's playing her role, maybe to be respectable, rather than embracing the freedom that she has when the man places his hand on the small of her back, or when he flirtatiously suggests uh, maybe like a sexual advance or something like that. But she can't do that because she has to play the role of whatever it is that's societally expected from her or something like that. This is kind of like translated into his later works into this notion of seriality, but it becomes much broadened, much more broadened out, I think, and seriality becomes the kind of de facto state of existence in a world that is mediated by objects, objects that kind of like uh, demand or command certain things from us. They set the limits for how it is that we can, one, relate to them, but also then they mediate our relations with other people. And so my problem with memes is that memes seem to kind of be this serial tendency, but like in a hyper-modern digital context. And so for me, part of me sometimes is like, I get annoyed by them. It's the same thing with emojis, and I use them. It's the same thing with emojis or certain Twitter speak or certain habits of language that we fall into. I just find myself falling into what I would say is a, a radical intensification of bad faith. And so what I wonder is, is does memification and do memes themselves just simply reproduce a sort of magnified bad faith? Okay, I get that. And certainly I think there's some level of which you can kind of fall into that seriality with, with use of memes. But here's what I think is good about memes. Um, I think that there's some sense in which in all of language is in a way meant to communicate something that we can't otherwise communicate to other people, such as like our inner subjective tendencies or feelings or thoughts or whatever, right? We're trying to portray that in a way the other person can understand. There's always some level in which you can't fully do it because it just it's not verbalizable or you can't share the exact experience with the person. You have to sort of use a symbol to do it, right? And me- what memes do is they get to this abstract level of something that we all can connect to even without being literal. Right, this kind of hyper symbolic way of doing it. It's kind of beautiful, I think. 
like for instance, I was thinking about what's my favorite meme. I, I don't know how to sort of quantify favoriteness of memes, but one that I really <laughs> like from like the old days, maybe you'll remember this, is like the good guy meme, which is the like kind of broish, like Long Islandish dude who has a cigar in his mouth and it's like good guy does this thing. You know what I'm talking about? No. He's a dude with a big old jacket and a cigar. And he's like, it's like the the cool guy who's not necessarily like smart or sophisticated, but he's just a good guy. And so he'll just help you out because he's a good guy. Okay. He's a bro. And I just love that meme because it the meme always follows like some good guy doing something like putting this album for download on the internet or like transcribing all of these lyrics or like puts the subtitles for the show that you pirated online for free good guy does that right mm. and it's just like you know i have that feeling like one of the best feelings is when you find some person who's just totally unsophisticated regular person nothing special about them but just does a cool thing because they just want to it's just like they just do it it's just their nature like, so i share that feeling of i love when so- i find someone who's like that and everyone else does too that's kind of beautiful that everyone else has that same feeling that i have so i can share that like inner subjective thing with other people through this abstract form. All language does that, but memes kind of like bring it out in this special way, I think. Here's my here's my problem with that though. It seems to presume that there's like a pre-existent status that is pure, that is itself unconstituted. Now I know you don't think that, but the way that it's being articulated is that somehow you have this pre-existent thing, this impulse, this desire, this thought, this feeling, this positional qualia whatever it is and that it's like somehow being like refracted through this prism and my thing is is but that desire itself might actually be constructed by the limits and the demands that are imposed by not just that meme but also the entire serial process that surrounds us right which is a much more like structural take but then what that means is is then that it's just a purely determined expression based on the mediations that are inducing that expression through that meme uh, itself. Yeah, of course right? it is. This is, this is my <laughs> yeah. whole problem with post-structuralist bullshit, dude. Of course it is. No one ever said it wasn't. Well, maybe like Descartes said it wasn't or something like that. I don't know. But no one ever said it wasn't. Of course that inner like subjective uh, qualitative experience is constructed by something external to yourself. Of course it is. It doesn't change the fact that there's still a sense in which I'm trying to express that thing through symbolic language and failing to do so. And so maybe I go to memes because it's a special way to portray that thing. It doesn't mean at all that it's like a purely private, um, you know, untainted experience that only I have access to. And so I share it with you because I want to like express myself into the world or whatever like that. Like, yeah, yeah. no one ever said I was. So I'm not worried about that at all. I totally so that, buy into the idea that it's constructed. Totally fine. So then my question, and this is this again goes to the heart of my book. God damn it, people just go out and order my book for your libraries. It's too expensive to buy because it's a hardback, <laughs> it's hundred bucks. But just order it for your libraries at your university so that you can go read it. But no, um, but this so this is I, I like that you say that. But so then my question is is um can we try, maybe not quantify, but can we try to characterize the intensity of that uh, qualitative desire or um, position in relation to the external structural conditioning? And is there a sense in which, in certain contexts, the external structural conditioning is so um, determinant that the, let's say, the spark or the differential that is like the quote-unquote internal 
qualitative experience is just simply like that the flame is blown out. Yeah, totally. That can absolutely happen. There's different intensities of that kind of, you know, for lack of better terms, private internal experience. Um, It's not private in the sense that uh, it it purely or like sort of originated only from the world of the internal and then has to move into the world of the external. And that's how the failure happens. That's not it, right? Um, It comes from the external to the internal in this like dialectical relationship, right? And changes as it goes back and forth. Um, And so different intensities of that internal experience can occur. Absolutely. And I think we can kind of measure that. And um, that gives us, I think, even more access to like the big Cartesian private inner theater or Mm. whatever. Right. But I still think there's some level in which you have to look at things from both subjective and objective points of view. That's a whole nother issue. I don't want to get too much down, but no, yeah. Either way, the point is memes can be bad, but also memes can be good. (laughs) Yes. Yes, yes. Same with emojis. Paddle, I'm start- paddle of my book. I'm starting to get into emojis a little bit more, dude. I got to be honest. I, I So I read I read a um, headline of it that said that people who use emojis uh, frequently are something like, I don't remember the number, 60% more successful in relationships. It was oh, some no shit. pretty huge number. You know what? I was like, I mean, damn, dude. Maybe that's explaining some recent turnings in my life in the past couple of months here. Huh. Huh. I don't know. Yeah, I wonder if, if the reason, if, if there may be some self-selection there. Maybe. Right? Like, who are the people who aren't using emoji nowadays? Like, boomers? Well, yeah, of course they suck at relationships. They're old. Um, so and they're jaded, and they've got so much baggage, and they've been divorced <laughs> multiple times. Come on. Yeah, right? We just haven't had the chance to get divorced. Multiple times. So, um, yeah. yeah, maybe it's self-selection that's going on there. But there could also be, there is something to do, as much as I don't like emojis, for some, like, weird... Um, just kind of natural antipathy I have towards them. I use them because sometimes writing really just can't get across the specific tone you want to get across that you can get across in speech. And so that's what emoji does for you. It bridges the gap between writing and speech. Thank you, Derrida. I don't want to hear from you about that. <laughs> I think emojis are a type of meme. So that kind of works, right? All right, let's go on to the next question. Um, this one is from Rodrigo uh, from Mexico, actually. He hit us up on Insta. He said, here's my question for the Owls episode. Much of the projects you guys realize, they approach either directly and purposely or indirectly and maybe even casually. The difference between the real and our perceived structure of experience. Given the specific and technological characteristics of the medium, do you believe that cinema can breach that gap between an event and a structured interpretation of said event? This kind of goes to what we were just talking about in a way. But can cinema traverse that gap troy yeah so even though i'm supposed to answer this question first i'm gonna have to ask you to do it because i don't even know how to approach this question um let's see if i understand the question adequately i think it's can cinema as an art form can it traverse the gap between um a sort of uh reality in itself let's say, and like our ideological or our already ideologically mystified, serialized um, orientation to the world. So the way I think of it is, is maybe this is like kind of a Kantian framing, right? Like we're foreclosed from the real 
and uh, like a numina phenomena distinction yeah yeah numina phenomena distinction and and uh you know we could maybe frame that in all kinds of other ways that like ideology is forever kind of like pressing the real from us or um something along those lines and can cinema somehow like traverse that gap uh can it can it like produce an event to uh, spark us in connection with the real. And I'll be honest, I like to think so. I like to think that when you are in a cinematic experience, I just went and saw Alien in 35mm at an Art Deco theater. Um, and then, it's not cinema, but then I saw um, a Brecht play live. And I mean, I, I personally enjoy the theater going experience, whether it's live theater or uh, cinema um, so much more. But I have those type of like transcendent, like I feel like I'm connecting usually at an affective level. And I think that's because what cinema can do more than anything. And I don't mean affective just purely in the sense of like emotions, like conscious emotions, um, but rather in the sense of that which is pre-conscious, that which is pre-emotional, that thing that sort of like charges and sparks you and shocks you to thought, so to speak. And I think cinema is profoundly capable of uh, shocking us and inducing us to thought. Matter of fact, I would say that thinking isn't something that is um, a natural or habitual thing, but it's something that uh, comes from outside of us. It's something that's always like intruding into our knowledges and that thought is something that is kind of a response to the shock, let's say. And so I would say that cinema profoundly can do that and can connect us with the quote unquote real. If by the real we mean something that is transcendent or excessive of that which is kind of like typically habitually constituting our own positions and our orientations to the world. And it does that through affect, through stimulation, through um, drawing us through the power of the imagination uh, outside of ourselves, so to speak. So that's what I would say. Yeah, I'm glad that the latter part you said that because I was thinking along the same lines that um, not to get too in the weeds about what the real is, but right. there's some sense in which thought is just always reactive. Um, and so there's something about philosophy, which tries to kind of assume in some aspects that thought is not reactive, that you can just kind of start from first principles and work your way to knowledge about everything, right? Like a purely rationalist mode, like, like a Descartes or Spinoza would maybe try to do in some sense. And while mm. I certainly love that working from first principles, logically and deducing um, from there, there's a sense in which thought can't really do that. It's always reactive. And so you have to be stimulated to thoughts or at mm. least stimulated in some way that thought can then react to and sort of um, make it thought can make its domain on uh, that area. And so things like cinema and literature and you know, video games and whatever else are really great in large part because they can stimulate us in interesting ways towards thought. And then we can kind of go from there and do the philosophical task. So yeah, I think in some sense, I don't know if you'd call that an event um, and tie that to any sort of philosophy of the event or anything, but there's a sense in which I think especially uh, cinema and literature is so good at doing that, at challenging you to think in ways you otherwise wouldn't because you don't have that stimulation from um, some alien source. So yeah, in that sense, I think those areas of art are especially interesting and not just in the purely representational mode of this piece of literature I just read is evoking this idea or whatever, but actually challenging you to think in new and different ways. I'd say it's precisely non-representational. Well, it can be representational. It's just not only that, right? Yeah, I don't know. I I almost wonder if if all representational thinking is precisely non-evental. 
you know, and that now this is non Bedouin event. This would be Deleuze's conception of the event, mm-hmm. um, which would be that sort of affective shock, and um, and so then the representational expression of knowledge is non-evental, but that 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 disruption, that uh, being induced into thought, that those that those stimulations, that those are what are, is thinking uh, in the proper sense, for Deleuze at least, and that's what I think, that's where the potency of cinema comes from, is its ability to induce thought by shocking you or by stimulating you to thought. And then once you are stimulated to thought, then you sort of like reconvene all of the things that you know, you're kind of like reacting to that and then you have to kind of like ward off the chaos a little bit and then put everything back in order and then you're back into the representational mode again. And then you're you're in the mode of knowledge again. But I wouldn't say that that's thought in the proper sense, or at least not thought in the eventual sense um, that I'm talking about with what I think like cinema can induce in us. Yeah, so not to get too deep in the weeds of it, but yeah, I think that's exactly where my more like platonic and Bedouin tendencies would come in where I would think that representational thinking can be eventual in that sense mm, um, and certain respects. It's just not only representational or primarily or foundationally representational. Mm. Yeah, anyway. Cool. Uh, one more question, dude. Cool, man. This well, is two more Aaron. questions. Two more questions. One from the, one from the audience oh, and then right. yeah, one yeah, from yeah. each of us. Okay. Forgot about that. So last from the audience, uh, from Aaron on Insta. Uh, talking with my father recently, who has a background in economics and linguistics, he said that the only way that philosophy can become mainstream is through stories, stranger, opposed to essays, like the myth of Sisyphus. What is your opinion on this? Oh, interesting. Um, the only way that philosophy can become mainstream is through stories as opposed to essays. Should philosophy become mainstream anyway? Yeah, that's a good point. I, I don't think I, th- I don't think philosophy proper can ever be mainstream. I mean, I don't want to essentialize philosophy too much, but I think that philosophy is always supposed to be a bit nomadic, diasporic, wild. I mean, like Socrates is literally put to death for being a philosopher. You know, I think that that a true philosopher is somebody who's always going to be untimely, or somebody whose whose ideas are going to be untimely at least. Um, so it can't be mainstream, but if philosoph- philosophical ideas, critical thinking, um, depth of thought, if they are going to be translated into, let's say a larger mainstream platform, um, I do think that the power of story is probably the, the best conductor. I mean, look at a film like the matrix, right? Like how many people understand the allegory of the cave because of the film, the matrix, mm-hmm. right? So I do think that there's something powerful in communicating philosophical ideas, but then here's my question is, is how potent is the philosophical idea of the cave as told through the matrix after 500 million people have seen it or a billion people have seen it? Does it, is it still philosophical or does it lose its potency as a sort of philosophical hammer to kind of make a callback to earlier in the episode? And does that matter? Am I, am I essentializing and narrowing the scope of what philosophy can do and what it can be? Yeah, I mean, I just think that these are just two different roles that philosophy can take, and they're not necessarily mutually exclusive or in any way antagonistic. So we talked about a second ago that you know literature and cinema can be these sources of stimulation to thought, right? Um, and that's philosophical in its own sort of way. But then after that, you have the actual thought that's been stimulated, and that often happens through essays, like The Myth of Sisyphus. Mm. So it's just two different roles, and certainly... I think with the 
what Aaron and his father are getting at is the idea that one is certainly more conducive towards popular consumption, the story, whereas the essay is just not because it requires a certain level of understanding how to read complex philosophical um, essays, which is just not a, not a skill everybody has or even a thing a lot of people want to do. So in that sense, there's just different audiences that are going to be sort of driven towards those different sources. And that's not bad. That doesn't mean one's better than the other. Mm. It just means they're two different kinds of things that are happening. Um, both are worthwhile in their own spheres. And kind of necessarily, it seems like one's going to be more open to popular consumption than the other. And that's probably fine. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I tend to think that the power of story has a certain layer to it that like a philosophical treatise or an essay just can never have. And then simultaneously, there's just because of the 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 format there are certain um like i don't know like expositional qualities that an essay can have that a story can't have maybe details and fleshing out certain characteristics of a of a detailed argument that a story can't have but what a story can do is it can inflect emotion it can um elicit sympathy or empathy with people that can kind of breathe life into conceptual ideas a little bit more richly than a typical essay can. But I'll be honest, the philosophical writers that I really love are the ones that can really wed them together. That's why I'm attracted to Sartre. He's a novelist first and foremost, a novelist and a playwright, and his philosophical treatises, they're all filled with these wonderful anecdotes and stories and examples because he's playing on the imagination and the emotion of the reader to be able to draw them into his phenomenological or uh, later post-phenomenological explorations. And I'm envious of that style of writing. It's something that I'm, that I'm always wanting to improve upon myself. So I love when you can really wed them together, actually. Yeah, I mean, the, the greatest, I mean, Plato's the same way, right? The greatest um, philosophers are often ones who can wed the stimulation to thought with the thought and go yeah. back and forth between them. And that's really the most satisfying, I think, form of doing philosophy because you're combining all the different roles together. And that's intellectually very satisfying. Mm. Agreed. Agreed. All right. So we have questions for each other now we're going to end on, yeah? It sounds good to me. Who should go first? You go first, because I'm gonna I'm gonna pin you. Oh great. So my question for you, dude, is what is the single most important and influential work of philosophy, or even not philosophy, just of anything, um, in your life? And by work, I define it as a kind of a work that you can devour or consume in one sitting, so not a whole book or a whole series of books or anything. Um, and then also explain why you consider it to be the most important in your life. Yeah, that's tough. Um, I actually think that for me, it's probably not a philosophical work and it's going to sound kind of weird, but it's because I wasn't, um, I wasn't really a, a very fervent reader until I kind of converted to Christianity and it was when I converted to Christianity that my dad basically uh, gave me a couple of books. My dad had been studying theology, and he said, hey, if you really want to take this seriously and you really want to read this stuff, he's like, here, check check this out, you know, check these out. And uh, 
And I remember I, I told people like the first books that I actually read, um, they're like, whoa, you went straight into those? Like as your first theology books? It wasn't like I was reading books like Lee Strobel, like The Case for Christ or some shit like that, or The Case for Easter or whatever the fuck his books were, or Purpose Driven Life. I went straight into fucking uh, a guy named Arthur Pink, A.W. Pink, and a book that he wrote called The Attributes of God. And then um, another guy named A.W. Tozer, who it is Tozer who wrote uh, a book called The The Pursuit of God. Um, okay. And uh, and then I don't remember what J.I. Packer's book was, but I did read J.I. Packer too. Those were the first three. It was J.I. Knowing Packer. Knowing God, I think it was, right? Knowing God. That's it, yeah. It was J.I. Packer, Tozer, and Pink. And those aren't like like you sit down in one sitting, but the pink book is really short. And actually they are all kind of short. I think Knowing God is a little bit longer, but they're really short and I fucking flew through them. And what it did for me is it just gave me like this voracious appetite for a new way to consume knowledge. And I didn't have that before. I I wasn't, you know, I, I just was in a fucking band and was then an actor and was chasing chicks and I didn't really develop or cultivate any sort of like disciplined intellectual skills or anything like that and for me it was that it was that first god that first month that i converted to christianity and i devoured these texts and it kind of just set me on a path for devouring everything else that i could that you can put in front of me that i can read you know i like that because the way i asked the question i kind of anticipated this is probably how i would have answered it the content is what Mm. mattered right the content Mm. of the work changed me in some way that has been long lasting or um, been the most influential, but you took it as you or you answered the question in such a way that it was about how it transformed your character, not mm. the content of the book, but how the book sort of read you in a way. And I like that because that's totally not how I would have thought about the question, but it's, it's very telling and very interesting that um, you thought more about how it transformed you. And I, I, yeah, I don't, I'm not even sure how I'd think about it that way. That's just like a, um, a, totally different form of of thoughts you know what's weird i have thought this a lot about myself that i tend to read things that way even now like that how do i put it i I have the thought sometimes and and i'm like oh i should write that down and i never ever do but then the thought always comes back and i'm always like i'll just remember it because it literally happens a hundred times and it's happened a hundred times and now i can't remember it but it's it's (laughs) It's literally, it's, it is less sometimes for me about the content than it is for um, like how it is that the, the, the resource or whatever changes me as I'm exposed to the content. And I, I almost feel like with every book that I read, somehow it changes me. And I don't even maybe even, I don't even realize how it's changed me. But I think that I always have an encounter with every text that I consume. And I think you could probably say the same about films that I um, watch and plays that I see and people that I meet and interact, conversations that I have, that it's it's less about the specifics of the content than it is about like almost like the formal experience of the encounter with the object, you know, which is probably why I'm not a scientist. <laughs> and then I'm more of like, <laughs> that I'm more of like an artist because the empirical evidence is less interesting for me than it is about the encounter with the information. Yeah, that is really interesting. I'm glad you entered it that way. I always knew I could expect from you a way of radicalizing the prompt. <laughs> All right, dude, I got a, uh, it's kind of unfair 
because it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> it's because it's pretty straightforward, and I'm kind of putting you on the spot. But I actually am really curious because we haven't talked about this in a while, and it's kind of personal. So you can kind of you can kind of intellectualize it, so you don't have to expose too much personal info. But um, but we got pretty open in our last episode about like theological stuff and stuff like that, where we where we feel about religion. Um, do you believe in God? Oh damn, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, can I, can I do the philosophical thing and, yeah. and sort of break down the question? Yeah, 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 please. Yeah. So when someone asks that question, what they usually are getting at is, um, do you explicitly endorse that X exists? Right. Yeah. So that's one way of approaching it would be like the same as saying, do you believe in unicorns? Right? Yeah. Like, do you believe that X exists? Yeah. Do I believe that and, I have chapstick on my desk right now? Yeah. Yes. I it's do. That gets you, yeah, that, that, that gets you into kind of classical, like modern philosophy questions of yeah. how, how do you know things and what's your justification and what kind of justification do you need so you can actually say that you um, know a thing rather than just believe it or whatever, right? And so my answer to that question would be I have no, I, I don't know. <laughs> mm. Mm. I mean, I don't know what the conditions are for belief in that thing. I don't know. Mm. Um, what that thing would even, what are the attributes or, uh, of that thing such that I can sort of believe that they exist or not? Like you have mm. to deal with all the paradoxes involved in the existence of God and stuff like that. So that part of the question, I just would say something along the lines of like agnosticism, which is, I don't know. And mm. honestly, that's not that different than I think most people, even people who are really, um, sort of strong believers in the sense of they endorse a specific like religious attitude towards life would probably also say they don't really know what it comes down to it in that sense of belief, mm. right? In that sense of the question. I mean, Kierkegaard certainly would be on that line. I think Dostoevsky's on that line. I think mm. all sorts of people throughout, especially Christian history, would say that there's a level of doubt you kind of almost have to have to be an honest believer, right? Um, so I think that's not really even the most interesting way of interpreting the question then in that kind of explicit belief formation. If the question instead is, do you believe in God in the same way you might say like, um, like, do you believe in your spouse? Do you trust mm. like a trust or faithfulness interpretation, which I think is probably the more like biblical or new Testament way of thinking about belief in God. Yeah. Um, that question's much more complicated and there's some sense in which I'd probably say yes. And in some sense, no. Mm. So the no would be, um, I pretty firmly reject the interpretation of of God that I was uh, given by my original kind of religious orientation. And I think mm-hmm. that it's explicitly false. And also uh, I have like ethical and normative issues uh, with it as well that I would make me want to reject it. But then also I think that to claim that I can just explicitly reject that religious orientation and belief in God in that second sense um, without it in any way affecting me or conditioning who I am now is also a sort of kind of a bad faith. Mm. Um, and certainly I think that a lot of my, um, my normative and principled um, positions on things stem still from that Christian orientation in a way that I think is still good, mm. actually. And in that sense, I think I would say there's no way I could tell you that I don't. Mm believe in god i certainly Mm. don't would never take the mantle of like an atheist by atheist we mean like a principled wholesale rejection 
of any and all religious orientations, which I think is incredibly hubristic and usually pretty ignorant. Mm-hmm. Um, and doesn't mean all atheists are that way, but that's just one way of thinking about it. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to skirt the question, but I think that there's it's a, such a polyvalent way that you have to approach that, that to skirt the question would be just to say yes and no, and then just not explain. But I think getting to saying the sense in which yes and the sense in which no is maybe a little bit more honest. And mm. What do you think about that as an answer? Yeah, I, I always struggle. I get this question a lot from people and I always struggle because I feel like I want to be like, well, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> you know, let's get a cup of tea and let's talk for the next two years and maybe we can <laughs> try to understand one another. But um, yeah, I, I also, though, I find that I get that question from people all the time. And it's almost like there's this need that people have to understand where people are from within that standard understanding of belief that you first outlined with regards to like some sort of external object that we understand the conditions by which I can ascertain how I can uh, um, how I can assent to uh, an intellectual knowledge of the thing, right? Like either empirical knowledge or some sort of like rational form of inquiry through deduction or whatever, that there's some sort of understood set of conditions that allow us to uh, actually uh, feel confident in our intellectual ascent towards the object. And I think that's what people expect generally when they ask the question. And I obvi- I'm always the, the annoying pain in the ass that's like, well, what do you mean by belief? And, you know, I usually talking in our like Peter Rollins episode, you know, we talked about uh, like parapraxis, but then uh, also talked about that idea of like, yeah, sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I do shit that is probably in line with certain Christian or theological things. And then sometimes I surely don't. So, you know, it's, I, I like to kind of pull out all of those tricks out of my hat, but I find it a very difficult question. Yeah, and here's, here's one response I would have. I often ask people when they ask that question or something like that, and then they, they want it to be that very simple first version of the question, which is, do you believe that X exists? Um, belief is not voluntary. You like try going out, um, looking at your window when it's raining and try making yourself believe it's not raining. <laughs> you can't do it, right? I mean, there's maybe some caveats here, but largely belief is not voluntary. It's involuntary. And so... Is it really interesting? Are you really getting anything interesting about a person when you get to their beliefs? Mm. Um, maybe you're getting you're getting the knowledge about who that person is, maybe or what their beliefs are, right? But you're not really getting anything that's important to their character, who they want to be, right? Their explicit um, sort of normative principles, the things they they value or desire, right? Um, the voluntary things, if there is anything voluntary. So clearly, you're asking for a more complicated question than just "Do you believe X exists involuntarily?" Just do a fucking brain scan if you want to yeah. find out a fact and it actually, about me. It actually really kind of almost angers me because I think that when you reduce religious belief to that form of intellectual assent, you actually cheapen the things that I found to be so attractive about the confessional theological formulations themselves, which I thought were much richer than maybe what certain, uh, let's say for an example, the even certain evangelical formulations have reduced uh, religion too, but it takes away all of that rootedness, all of the mythos, all of the praxis, all of the orthopraxy, which is the true undefiled religion is to visit widows and orphans, right? It's not about like 
oh, I, I can recite the Shema or I can recite the Ten Commandments or I can quote Bible verse, verses or I can tell you all the right things. It's literally, it's about that sort of like connection and your piety to um, these these other people that you're in community with, which is so much deeper and so much more, so much richer than like just intellectual facts. But I think unfortunately a lot of Christian formulations, a lot of theological formulations um, in monotheism are reduced to just like a simple intellectual exercise. Not all, not all of course, but I think that there's a tendency to skew in that direction in most um, literalist readings of scriptures and in most uh, like evangelical interpretations of um, uh, of religion. And that comes straight from Jesus himself, right? Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, on that day. And then all these things about explicit beliefs and yeah. uh, intellectual sense. And then, you know, they don't make it into the kingdom of heaven. So um, that's a that's been a common criticism of that kind of a question or that kind yeah. of an understanding of belief in God from, you know, time immemorial. Well, I think that's a perfect way to cap off the 100th episode. That about sums up who we are, I think. Yeah, dude, that was a pretty great question. Cool, man. Well, guys, thank you so much for, if you've been there from the beginning, we love you. If you're a newbie, we love Holy you shit, too. Holy shit, dude, if you've been here since the beginning. If you've been here <laughs> since the beginning, I bet if you've been here since the beginning, if you have been here since like the first episode, let us know. Like maybe not consistently listening to every single one. I'm sure you skipped a few or something like that. But if you're one of the OGs, hit us up and let us know because that's fucking amazing. And if you're not, and if you're a newbie, Here's to a hundred more, motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we love you. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, owls underscore at underscore Don. Insta, you can email us, owls at donpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to go to Mubi, mubi.com slash owls at dawn to get your 30-day trial. Patreon, patreon.com slash owls at dawn. What am I forgetting, Troy? I don't think so. I think that's pretty good, dude. Okay, sweet. I think that's pretty much it then, yeah? Just one more thing, man. For the hundredth time, man, what do we have to do? Dasta Dani, America. Yeah, yeah.